reflecting as we used to in the monastery again the, the days and nights are relentlessly passing uh, how well are we spending our time not to uh, intimidate ourselves but to understand that um, the time that we do have is precious and it's easy to just get swept away by our moods uh, our patterns and our old way of the way the mind projects on the, the miracle of each moment it's just another boring moment <laughs> rather than realizing yes it is everything that gets filtered through our concepts but it's also an opportunity it's a it's a fresh moment and whatever what the day was yesterday, whether we felt it went great or we felt it was a wipeout, if we feel the whole retreat's a wipeout, still in this moment, every moment of wakefulness, of presence, we begin again. And this is the beauty of this practice, is whatever's happened, whatever, wherever we go, wherever we wander, um, whatever overwhelms us, however lost we feel, however despairing we can be, or even how wonderful it was, that now has moved into the stream of time and we intersect that stream of time here and now by establishing again and again moments of being here as fully as we can remembering that our, our job is purely to show up uh, to be here in a certain way but to be here primarily um, and to little by little just apply those moments of path activity that is our work, just this much in each moment, and then through that allowing, as it said in the suttas, allowing for the fruition of that path activity, the freedom of the heart, the insight, the clarity, rather than feeling constantly pulled along by life, moving into more ability to have some mastery within life, uh, to that, that fruit uh, to engage and to be present, a um, place of steadiness and clarity and insight, reflection, and more profoundly peace, liberation. That fruit arises according to the Dharma. It's not our ego that can do it, our sense of self that pushes the agenda. You know, we, because of course we would like now. <laughs> You know, we want it now, we want it in a certain way, but what we may, as Rilke says, may, or someone said, can't remember who, but some great poet, we may want for the wrong thing, you know, we might project what we think we want, and yet, actually, that dharma has its own intelligence, and it ripens and opens in our life according to its own nature. So this we trust. So we've been practicing this uh, gathering and we can use it as the foundation, this samatha, which means the stilling, the calming of the, 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 uh, flow, the primary um, three forms of energy that are part of our experience every waking moment, bodily, feeling tone, thinking, mental energy. The stilling through the practice of holding attention to uh, to whatever object we choose to hold attention to, be it um, a thought form like a mantra, be it in this particular case according to as the Buddha taught, body, breath, sensation to sound 
to whatever we choose. To follow the Buddha's instruction, and because it's particularly profound, um, we've been um, connecting with the, the body, uh, first foundation. And little by little, gathering some skill, a skill over a lifetime, in this capacity to turn attention in this way into the present experience of our embodied feeling, flow, sensation, movement of the breath. In a very simple way, and as this uh, samadhi, as this gathers, this samadhi, this unification that becomes one aspect of the fruit, and as is said that this fruit has the um, the fruit is the uh, the ability to know a, a a refuge, a pleasing abiding that's not dependent upon the world, which is something. <laughs> it's not dependent on you know whatever is emerging around us. We get sort of washed away by other people and their reactions and what they're doing by our own material that comes up, that there is a dimension, a peaceful abiding that, that is beneath that which we begin to tap into through this calming and gathering practice. And then when it's really profoundly developed, it leads to great states of peace, calm, subtle, subtle experience, has a healing aspect to it. This is all within the realm of, it's called samatha, Samadhi, calming, gathering, focusing. Primarily that was the main methodology and teaching that of the time of the Buddha before the Buddha became the Buddha. Yeah, so to just develop these very highly concentrated, subtle states of mind and in the process sort of eschewing the world, moving away from the world, living in caves, forests. The sort of the profound renunciant path, but the Buddha saw a problem in that, that it depended on a lot of control, a lot of um, sometimes even aversion to the world of form, to contact. So it wasn't a complete path. Uh, and so his particular insight and, and, and the particular brilliance of the teaching of the Buddha was to actually um, also um, open the meditation into realizing that actually ultimately the world of form, the world of contact, the world of experience, sensory experience, the world is not the problem. (laughs) The mind ultimately isn't the problem. The problem is our misunderstanding, is the ignorance of the mind. That doesn't understand the true nature of reality, for example, that things are changing, or that we can't we don't own anything. It's not ours. So in our meditation we've been exploring bringing these two aspects together, both the, the calming, the gathering, but also allowing the awareness to open, or sometimes called a more choiceless awareness, allowing the awareness to open so we can contemplate and reflect on the nature of experience, and particularly our reactivity, which is sometimes mixed with uh, these hindrances that we've been exploring, aversion, resistance, 
wanting, dullness, restlessness, getting tangled in conceptual proliferation, doubt, in relationship to here and now. And how these, this in, then tends to color, color the mind. So in the second and third spheres of the foundations of mindfulness, we start to open to, uh, to the, the content of our experience, not just the, the stillness, but to actually open to what is emerging as both feeling tone and as the states of mind. or the hindrances that might come for the sake of understanding them, contemplating them, seeing clearly and releasing from identification from being absorbed into those states and we do this because as as is laid out in the progression of the teaching for the purification of the hearts, uh, for the uh, surmounting of sorrow and lamentation and stress and suffering, for the disappearance of pain and grief, and for the attainment of the true way and the realization of Nibbana or peace. These are the fruit, the process and the fruits of these moments of practice of both steadying and then investigating and seeing the nature of experience. And so we, we um, contemplated uh, the other day, Sajjan Charwood said, be as one who can know and watch the heart. The heart is pure already, there's this mind, heart, citta. It's already pure, but because of contact, including contact with perception and memory and storyline, because of contact, emotions, feelings in particular, stories arise and color the mind. But let let our, our practice, let our mindfulness be like a tightly woven net to catch these states and feelings that come so that we can investigate them before we react or before we uh, identify even and assume this is a problem I have it's a moment of reactivity great without mindfulness can create sometimes a lot of problems for us and for others things we regret, things that can happen in a second so this practice is part of what we're doing in this meditation through the undertaking of conscious limitation is being able to tolerate and to withstand and to contain what we usually don't want to be with so this is why sometimes on a retreat, even though it looks like we're not doing very much, it's actually very demanding. <laughs> you can feel really tired at the end of the day because just the 
just the containing and, and holding within the limitation of the silence and the forms that we're using of sitting and walking and in, in the interiority of it is like we're, we're, we're holding that container for whatever's arising for the sake, that, for the purpose of contemplation, for the purification, for the direct seeing of what is, rather than the usual mode of reactivity. And that's, that's a very, you know, these analogies that you'll find sometimes in the sutta that it's easier to meet an army than to, do, to meet yourself in this way. I'm not so sure about that. I think I'd rather sit on my mat. Than <laughs> 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 but certainly it can feel like that sometimes. It can feel like we're just about you know, ready to, to you know, you can't, can't hold it anymore. But then unless we remember, it's just always this much, take another breath and trusting this deeper fruition of the path, the Dharma, something, we're trusting something else beyond our own capacity. That actually as awareness comes into engage, awareness engaging the experience, there's an alchemy that starts to happen. The example that, that I, I use sometimes is from that um, documentary, The Weeping Camel, which is a very good one for meditators to see, where, where the family, the nomadic family in the plains of Mongolia um, have a problem because the camel, the mother camel that's given birth, it was a very, very difficult birth, and so she rejects the baby camel and, the ba- and won't, won't allow the baby camel to suckle. And in those cultures, everything affects everything else. So if the animals aren't happy and able to move, then the, the people can't either. And they have to move, they have to pack up and move, but they have this issue with the mother camel. She's stuck, she's traumatized, the baby's gonna die. And so they get the local uh, shaman, like a school teacher that comes. And he just gets the whole family to sit there with the animal, with the mother camel, and they just, they just sit around and he just starts to play a very melodious, simple stringed instrument as, as the human mother goes to the camel and just touches where her heart is about and then just starts to intone a very uh, sort of melodious like chant song. And there's a, the, everyone's just holding the whole process in awareness. No one's trying to fix the situation, but there's just this accumulation of awareness. And at a certain moment, you see the, the mother camel just, just breathe out. She just re- releases some of that tension, that trauma, and, and she cries. You see these tears coming. She just you know, shakes a little, and, and then she allows the baby to come and suckle. So it shifts, a shift happens. Now, now, no one did that. No one wrote a PhD about it. You know, why was the trauma there and what happened and, and all of that which we can do, but they understood in that moment there was pain. And what was needed in response to the pain was that loving awareness. Awareness isn't just a cold clinical thing. Awareness, the fundamental nature of the jitta heart has this profound aware knowing nature. Uh, that's connected with the, the intelligent, deeper intelligence and wisdom 
of the universe, of, the, of life. So bringing that into play in relationship to what we're aware of, the phenomena of our experience, there's an alchemical dynamic that starts to happen that allows this wisdom to operate and within that the rebalancing, reconfiguration of what has been stuck, what is old pains, where we get consistently quartz and in that process shifts, transformation, healing, release, the freedom that the Buddha talks about in the Satipatthana Mindfulness Sutta for the relinquishment and the overcoming of suffering and grief can begin to come to fruition. So this this path is a path that will bring us into relationship with with dukkha. This, this word that appears again and again, which means many things, generally translated in English as suffering. This is the journey of suffering. The journey through suffering is a is an archetypal journey that we all must undergo, <laughs> often unwillingly, <laughs> dragged through it. <laughs> but in the Buddhist uh, practice or in this mindfulness practice, it doesn't just have to be an unconscious uh, struggle. It can be a conscious engagement for the sake of liberating the heart through un- of from the unnecessary self-afflicted often suffering through not really seeing clearly through not really having the patience sometimes just to bring the practice to the experience and allow the transformation to happen dukkha sometimes translated that which is hard to bear Sometimes that which is apart from the perfect, the whole. Sometimes as stress. Sometimes as dissatisfaction. In the first noble truth, the Buddha encouraged us to know dukkha. Just, just to simply know it. Or as a gentile, um, like when. Uh, when our Western abbot in the monastery, Ajahn Sumedho, American, first got to the monastery in northeast Thailand, is, you know, he was a pretty accomplished, big American guy, and he was sort of put at the bottom, at the end of the row of the young Thai novices. Ajahn Chah didn't give preferences, as would happen in some monasteries, roll over for the Westerners. He was sort of stuck him at the end and see, let's see how this guy does. <laughs> Let him sort of kind of marinate for a while. Um, you know, and all that, you know, I'm someone important. He wasn't. <laughs> it's just like you just sit there at the end of the row. And, you know, a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering would come up, you know, to adapt to this culture and the regime and the food and not being important and not being special and just being another bald head in the row. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and these boring menial tasks and uh, one of them just sweeping leaves. And Ajahn Chah 
would be a master at inducting his disciples into direct confrontation with suffering, and he would sometimes uh, quicken it. <laughs> so he could see that this, uh, this rather gangly Westerner that had washed up in the shores of his very simple Thai forest monastery was suffering like mad, and one day he's Ajahn Sumedho sweeping the leaves and, you know, grumbling and suffering and grumbling. (laughs) And Ajahn Chah comes up to him and says, well, is is the suffering in the leaves? No. (laughs) Is it in the broom? No. Is it in the place? I suppose not. (laughs) Is it in anyone else? I guess not. Where is the suffering? <laughs> so pointing to the mind. Why? Why is it there? Why? 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 I don't want to be here. I don't want it like this. I want it somehow different. So then, then he would always point to what, what gives, what's giving rise in this moment, in the very simple way, the very simple way of teaching and pointing to, in this moment when you feel that dukkha however you feel it arise, usually you can trace it back to this resistance. I don't want it like this and desire, I want it a bit different. I don't want my body like this, I don't want that sound like that, I don't want this pain like this, I don't want people to be like that, I don't want the world to be like this, it should be like this. I should be peaceful, I should, by having done so many years of practice now, I would hope for a little bit more, you know, (laughs) than yet another distracted mind for an hour. (laughs) I wish I could, and so on and on we go. And that mind, this is the avicca of the mind, is constantly projecting onto the self, onto other, onto the world, this, this struggle. And it's not to say, you know, it's not to say that it shouldn't be different. It should, but it's very, it's a very uh, different dynamic when we engage what should be different from wisdom rather than that agitation and that demand that someone should be a different way than they are. I wish people would not, I wish that person wouldn't, would not react like that. Or as, as Ajahn Chah in another story, when, when again, when Ajahn Sumedho, you know, one day he came, he only came twice to the West, to England, actually, and um, he, he came to the, the very early beginnings of the monastery that in uh, West Sussex, Chithurst Monastery, when it was still a building site, and he said to the community there, very emergent community, he said, oh, well, are you getting along okay? And, uh, and Ajahn Sumedha again said, yeah, no, it's going, it's going great, it's going fine. He said, oh, no, but there won't be much wisdom then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, it's the things that are difficult that will grow the wisdom. And then, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, to encourage, he would encourage you to know, try to really learn from how things are, not how you want them to be. And another time, Ajahn Sumedho took this group of English, British people to Thailand, you know, to the monastery. And um, one of the nuns, the first Western nun, American woman, 
who'd become a, a, a rather radical evangelical Christian for some bizarre reason um, and was going around telling everyone in the monastery that Buddhism was evil, that Ajahn Chah was evil. And um, I can actually understand how she made that shift. I think it probably was a pretty alienated experience for her as the only Western woman to be in that situation, Northeast Thailand, and she met people that were probably very kind Christians that came in. But anyway, she took it to quite a, a level of then having to, after five years as a Buddhist nun, reject and demonize everyone and everything. And, and so Ajahn Soda brought all these British Buddhists and for a nice mindful experience, and the first person they met was this nun telling them how evil the monastery was and how evil Ajahn Chah was and how Buddhism was the wrong path. And of course everyone got upset and Ajahn Sumedha went to Ajahn Chah said, you've got to get rid of her, she's got to go, she's upsetting the disciples. And Ajahn Chah just listened and said, you know Sumedha, maybe she's right. <laughs> maybe, you know, just, you know, it's like, what's your mind doing with this? What's, what's your mind doing with, with the rights and wrongs of the world? So I'd always encourage to keep listening. So when dukkha arises, it's not, you know, at first we go, there's something going wrong. I should be peaceful, but rather realizing, actually, this is the fruit, a fruit of the path. This is one of the fruits because it's, a, it's only through the wise negotiation of this territory that wisdom and freedom really begins to appear. We begin to understand that we don't, we don't have to suffer unnecessarily. We can still feel pain. We can still feel grief. We can still feel terrible, difficult challenges. But we don't add to it. We don't create unnecessary even more by it shouldn't be, I want it otherwise and so on. Yes, if we can skillfully change the situation, then do, but more deeply in this practice now we're exploring what is it that we generate each moment, that, that literally the mind that's generating dukkha. And it's this that the Buddha said we can completely overcome through this um, practice of mindful clear seeing. In our practice today, we're continuing to gather moments of steadying, moments of presence, keep simplifying just this much, just this much. And as we were practicing in the walking meditation last night, just being able to, the, the method of Tumpulu Sayad, or the Burmese master, just moments of seeing. This is one way of beginning to help to move underneath the reactivity of the mind and suffering into the reality of direct experience, which then gives us a capacity and the awareness like that response to the mother camel to touch then what we're with from a more, from more capacity, more intelligent, wise, aware presence. It's available to us in the moment. So a moment of seeing. 
and as we practice even softening the gaze so that we're not just keep looking at things and oh it's beautiful and oh it's lovely and is the weather going to change and do you know so that the mind doesn't go into a lot of conceptual proliferation a moment of seeing a moment of hearing plumber <laughs> why and you can go into a lot of proliferation like that I hope they do a good job <laughs> I hope the washing machine doesn't break <laughs> moment of hearing, a moment of sensing and feeling just as is, and then noticing even as uh, there's a teaching that uh, the Buddha gave to um, the the disciple that was known as the the person that understood the teaching most quickly, Bahia. Bahia was uh, saw the Buddha on arms round. The Buddha was walking very peacefully, peacefully on arms round with his disciples, with his bowl. And Bahia came up to him and said, oh, Lord Buddha, please give me a teaching. And the Buddha said, no, not, it's not the right time. Don't ask the Buddhas when they're on arms round. And then Bahia said, no, Lord, give me a teaching. And the Buddha said, no, it's not the right time. And then Bahia says, no, please give me a teaching. And, um, and then the Buddha gave him a teaching and then it said directly after he became awakened on this teaching and then directly after the teaching he was gored by a runaway cow or bull and died <laughs> so I guess he had had sense of urgency <laughs> something new I've got to get this man to tell me something now because I don't have much time and the, but he's also known as the one that understood the teaching most quickly got the, he got it most quickly he got, he got the whole thing so the Buddha said, but here, when he, when he finally, he said, well, when a Tathagata is pressed three times, he has to answer. Listen carefully, Bahia, and I will attend to what, and attend to what I say. In the scene is just the scene. In the heard is just the heard. In the sensed is only the sensed. And in the cognized is only the cognized, or in the thinkings, just thought. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here and no thing there. This is how you should train yourself. Since here, for you, there is just in the seen, the seen, the heard, the heard, the sense, the sense, the cognized, the cognized, you will see that there is no thing here and therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. Seeing this, you will be neither located your awareness will be neither located in this world nor the next or betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. This is like a, one of those koans, <laughs> but with practice, the very tangible practice. So awareness, the fundamental jitta, the fundamental mind, the nature of mind isn't caught in time, isn't here or there isn't located in you or me. So that to reconnect into the root of the mind, the root of the jitta, through the sensory experience, rather than in spite of it, through this very simple practice of just being able to, throughout our day, as we steady, as we connect with the breathing, the body, the foundation that we've been building, 
to add this inquiry, this is an aspect of insight, of inquiry, of contemplation, to notice. It's a, it's a way, it's the wise reflection that can notice, that can know. It's a function of the jitta to know. In the seeing, there's just the moment of seeing. No proliferation, no complexity. In the hearing is just hearing, hearing of sound, just sound. And perhaps for us quite powerfully in the sensed and the feeling, where we have a lot of reactivity, oh, why am I feeling this? And oh God, this is horrible. <laughs> oh, I wish I could feel more of that that I had this morning, it was so delicious. But now, in the feeling, it's just this much. Not adding that second dart of where did it come from, why is it, what can I do about it, how can I get more, how can I get rid of it. It's just that pure knowing, it's just this much. What is sensed, what is felt, Vedana. And even more subtle, and we'll explore this as the retreat goes on in the think in the thinking which wraps us into the most continual, ongoing, endless stories (laughs) with this huge momentum that is completely encapsulates and constricts the whole of our awareness to have a moment to say this is just thought and not identifying and being shaped by that thinking storying process believing it so much what our thoughts are telling us is a very fickle base upon which to rest our stability because one moment it's great I love retreats I'm going to go on a year retreat you know, I'm going to sell up everything I'm going to go off to the Himalayas I'm going to divorce my partner I'm going to give away my <laughs> you know I'm aware in the next moment in the afternoon I can't stand another minute of this can I arrange an emergency call and get me sprung out of this and this is just rubbish doesn't make any sense you know so we can move from you know so which one do we believe so just this is just to penetrate into to see into the nature of thought in the same way as we do feeling sensation, breath, that all things, when we identify, they become dukkha. Even on a subtle level, even if it's not suffering, there's still some sense of dukkha, because it's unstable. When we, when we stick to, when we react, in the release of that, in the softening around that, it's just dharma, it's nature. It's just nature, it's just life, being experienced as feeling, sense, thought, creativity, mood, and in the midst, at the heart of every moment of applying this mindful attention, we notice that there is the freedom of awareness, the awareness itself, just free, just present, just timeless, just not going somewhere. And so this is why the Buddha said this, this, this is the freedom from dukkha. This is non-dukkha. It's called Nibbana. 
it's not, there's no walls of the mind. There's freedom to contemplate, freedom to respond rather than slavishly react. Freedom to rest in peace. Freedom to tune into the deeper current of intelligence and wisdom that's available to us as we listen more deeply. That isn't shaken, so I say at the end of the Mangala Sutta we've been chanting, isn't shaken, is in touch with the world, is not frightened anymore of the world and its impingements. Oh my God, a sound destroyed my samadhi. Oh my God, someone's going to speak to me. <laughs> you know, this is why a Buddha is uh, one that can go into the world uh, fearlessly. You know, the Buddha isn't going, oh, please don't wobble me. <laughs> so the Buddhas never waver because they're rooted in the unchanging. They know the unchanging. It's a refuge. So although being in touch with the world is not overwhelmed or shaped by the world, in fact being in touch like that with the mother camel, just holding awareness to the world, the phenomena, internal, external, gently, kindly, listening, compassionately, touching the moment with this awareness, mindful, present awareness moment by moment. So coming into our sitting for a few minutes, our posture. Just taking a moment to feel into the body, the posture, how is it now, the pressure sitting, connecting with the sensation of the ground as we feel it as pressure, solidity, support. And beginning our session just for a moment, putting to one side our engagement with whatever we've been thinking or considering, just to re-establish attention here, perhaps taking a deeper, slower, longer breath. Feeling that breath coming down into the belly and on the exhalation just softening through the body.
allowing your attention to locate, your awareness to locate sensation within the body, either as breath or as tingling, just to rest there as a foundation, to ground the mental activity on the slower rhythm of the body. If it's helpful, just guiding that mind, that mental activity with a thought, whatever thought, breathing in, breathing out, steadying, steadying, I breathe in, I breathe out, whatever thought can help to support, befriending, befriend the mind, help guide it, help guide it into relationship to the body. Remembering all that is required for us in our day of practice is just to show up as best we can for this moment. Awareness with interest, steadying and with wise reflection, wise contemplation. <laughs>